welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I am your host, Lauren Burke. And I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, we are finally, finally talking about Nella Larson, her novel Passing, and the recent Netflix adaptation. And I have just been dying to talk about this book for a really long time. And I'm actually dying right now. I just said to Hannah, I'm really sick, (laughs) but I didn't want to reschedule because I want to talk about this book right now. (laughs) Just take a minute and I'm going to steady myself and then we can get into it. Yeah, you all right? You ready? You got this? I mean, let's let's do it. But actually, (laughs) before we get into the book, I do want to kind of set the scene for the political landscape that Larson will have been living in and writing in. And it's something that we've kind of been talking about all season. But if you haven't listened to those other episodes, you know, here we go. So if this all sounds messy, chaotic, and confusing, one, it's because this is a ridiculously condensed version of events, but two, um, let's just remember that America's racial history is messy, chaotic, and confusing, among other things, and it's all baked into our legal system. So going back to Virginia in 1662, the colonies had adopted the principle of partis sequitur ventrum in slave law, which said that Children born to enslaved mothers were born into slavery regardless of who their fathers were, and children born to white mothers were free even if they were mixed race. Children born to free mixed race mothers were also free. So we have this population of free people of color here, and generally speaking, before the Civil War, in some states, if you were a free person, with less than one-eighth or one-quarter African ancestry, then you were legally considered white. Just want to note here that documentation was not super common or thorough at this time, so if your race was questioned, people mainly had to go off of your appearance and your standing within the local community. Now, after the Civil War, that is when individual state laws begin cracking down on people with African ancestry being recognized as white. Essentially, there's this rise in documentation to enforce segregation and Jim Crow laws because you got to know who those people of color are if you're going to take away their voting rights, right? So in 1865, Florida passed a law that stated anyone with one eighth or more African ancestry would be legally defined as a person of color. But then The Racial Integrity Act was passed in Virginia in 1924, and that said you were defined legally as Black if you had any African ancestry. So this is the one-drop rule. And this law reinforced racial segregation by prohibiting interracial marriage, and it also required that all birth certificates and marriage certificates include a person's race as either white, colored, or mixed. So again, they're getting that documentation. According to the historian J. Douglas Smith, this bill was aimed at those mixed race persons who were no longer clearly identifiable as black. Now, it's worth noting that a lot of white people were very concerned about how a one drop rule would affect them as well due to generations and generations of interracial relationships. 
So this led to a lot of people rewriting their own family histories, denying family members, passing. And we've talked a bit in our Facebook group over the past few years about the popularity of passing literature at this time. And, you know, why was it so popular? And I think one of the many reasons is because of the Racial Integrity Act, which was actually passed just five years before Nella Larson's passing. Now, there is a really interesting article about the Racial Integrity Act, the various revisions and the impact it had over on Encyclopedia Virginia. And it says that according to federal census reports between 1890 and 1910, the number of mixed race Virginians or mulattoes, as they were referred to in the census, increased from 122,441,000 to 222,910,000. However, that number then drops drastically in 1920 to 164, 170, 1,000. Some white people wondered whether this change, along with a longer, more gradual decline in the number of black Virginians, was the result of African Americans passing as white. The article also mentions cases in which people sued the courts for being misidentified and in one instance being denied a marriage certificate because it was considered an interracial marriage by the clerk, but not by the couple. So actually, this all puts me in mind of a speech that was delivered by the activist Mary Church Terrell. So Terrell was one of the first African-American women to earn a college degree and she was the president of the NACW from 1896 to 1901. And she was also a founding member of the NAACP and author of the 1940 autobiography, A Colored Woman in a White World. Her parents, Robert Reed Church and Louisa Aris Church, were formerly enslaved and went on to become successful business people. Her father was one of the South's first African-American millionaires. And you can actually read a great bio on Terrell on the National Women's History Museum website. Um, But Hannah, will you read this speech for me? Just a little bit of it. Yeah, the whole speech speech. is great, but yeah. (laughs) I won't deliver it. (laughs) This very difficulty of distinguishing between white and colored people has caused several railroad companies to part with considerable cash. In one southern state a few years ago, a wealthy white woman with a rich olive complexion was forced to take a seat in the Jim Crow car because the conductor told her he knew she was coloured and he was hard to fool. Her husband sued the railroad company for $50,000 but compromised on 20000 In Kentucky, a white man was forcibly ejected from a coach set aside for people of his own race and placed in a Jim Crow car. The railroad company paid him $10,000 for making such a terrible blunder. That the courts consider it a disgrace and a misfortune to be coloured is shown by the large amounts cheerfully awarded in order to heal the wounded feelings of white people who have been mistaken for coloured. A coloured man, who is much fairer than the average Caucasian, was once forced out of a Jim Crow car where he was conversing with people, in which the conductor insisted he belonged. When he sued the railroad company for the insult, one cent was considered sufficient to heal the wounded feelings of a coloured man who had been falsely accused of being white. There's a lot to unpack here as far as like where America was at Mm -hmm. this time with regards to race. But I think one thing I want to get across is that it's just chaotic. Mm -hmm. It's messy. 
And we are taught this very compressed, like black and white history of America's relationship to race. But like today we're gonna get into the gray zone and that gray zone is compromised of like just paranoia, rage, greed, desire, just this big mess that was all a byproduct of white supremacy, really. Now, Hannah, Mm -hmm. are you ready to talk about passing? You know it. I'm so ready. Okay, well, that was actually a trick question because (laughs) uh, the last thing I wanted to bring up before we dive into Larson's novella is actually the short story of the same title written by Langston Hughes in 1930. So we are going to talk about passing, but just a different passing. Well, we're really like edging in this episode, aren't we? (laughs) We are. We are. Um, So Langston Hughes is like the Harlem Renaissance Charles Dickens in that, you know, he knew everyone. This is not Langston Hughes slander. (laughs) I'm just saying that he knew everyone and he just he keeps cropping up whenever we talk about a writer from the Harlem Renaissance you you better believe that Langston Hughes is also going to be sort of in conversation with them. So this story, Passing, is written in the form of a letter from a man named Jack to his mother, who he recently passed in the street but was unable to properly greet as he is passing for white. He thanks her for not acknowledging that she knows him and over the course of the letter justifies his reasons for passing as a white man, his plans for the future, and his wish that his siblings, unable to pass as he is, do not think too badly of him. Over the course of the letter, we learn that his father, a wealthy white man, left his fortune to his white children. The father had paid for the education of his black children while he was living, but this stopped when he died, meaning only Jack received a full education. So we could probably do an entire episode on this piece alone, but There are just a couple of things that I want to say about it quickly. And one is that in Nella Larson's passing, we don't have Claire's side of the story. So you could read this piece to help inform you of what she was possibly like thinking and feeling. And I just want to read out a few of these lines. So Jack says, I'm not as scared as I used to be about somebody taking me for colored anymore just because I'm seen talking to a Negro on the street. I guess in looks, I'm sort of suspect proof anyway. You remember what a hard time I used to have in school trying to convince teachers I was really colored. Sometimes, even after they met you, my mother, they wouldn't believe it. They just thought I had a mulatto mammy. Since I've begun to pass for white, nobody has ever doubted that I am a white man. So there are people who are optically white, but legally black, and they have to constantly sort of reassert their blackness. Mm. And so I just think that's an interesting perspective to like maybe take into Nella Larson's passing, along with a million other things that we could discuss about this piece, honestly. So something that I found really interesting and really sad about the piece is how the writer, Jack, moves between defending his actions in what sometimes feels like a pretty insensitive way, especially in regards to his siblings, uh, and then moving to expressing his regret and the difficulty he feels in not being able to be with his family, especially his mother. And you see it in his wondering why his mum never demanded more when his father died, while at the same time admitting that he wouldn't have. 
if he was in her place. Mm-hmm. And in his describing the affluent white neighbourhood he intends to settle in with his soon-to-be white wife, where his mother, who he misses, can't visit, but she can write, as long as he sets up a post box because she can't right. write to his house. Mm-hmm. So you really get a sense of Jack hardening himself to his decision and almost creating that distance between his old life and his new life in just within the lines of the letter. And these two lines really struck me. Since I've made up my mind to live in the white world and have found my place in it, a good place, why think about race anymore? I'm glad I don't have to. I know that much. And then... I'm going to marry white and live white. And if any of my kids are born dark, I'll swear they aren't mine. I won't get caught up in the mire of colour again. Not me. I'm free, Ma. Free. It's so conflicted Mm -hmm. and the pain is really palpable. And so I do really understand why you wanted us to read this alongside Larson's novella. There is so much of Claire in this story. Uh, And the last thing I noticed about this piece was just that the issue, right, with the father agreeing to pay for the schooling of his black children while he's alive, and that completely comes to a stop when he dies. So only Jack, his oldest child, got a full education because his Mm -hmm. younger two siblings, the father dies, and then they're not educated anymore. And it's just this thing that's been coming up all season of these people who are obviously slapping themselves on the back like... You know, I'm sending them to school, I'm doing this, I'm doing all sorts, and nothing is done to protect them when that person is gone, right? Right. No one is freeing their slaves in their lifetime. No one is putting it in their will. No one is doing anything, which when you're dead and gone, what does it matter? Right. Something we saw here in the quadroons, we saw Mm -hmm. it in incidents in the life of a slave girl. It's something that pops up in Jesse Fawcett's fiction constantly. These heroines who have a white father and a black mother and then white father is gone and how do we navigate the world? Yeah. Um, yep, totally. <laughs> I think it's also interesting to get the male perspective on passing in here too, in the sense that men can pass and move through the world with a bit more ease, right? Especially mm-hmm. when it comes to earning money. And also the big thing, you can deny these children if they come out too dark. Yeah. You can accuse your wife of having an affair. So, um, so yeah, I thought that was particularly interesting. Like in, um, I'm going to get Desiree's baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This also right? pairs really well with Desiree's yeah. baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't know, but you know, mm-hmm. that's exactly what he does. Right. Okay, now I think we're ready to talk about Nella Larson and the novella. So let's do it. The Nella novella, mm-hmm. as I've been thinking about it <laughs> while working on notes. Nella Larson, for those that don't know, was an American novelist and member of the Harlem Renaissance. Her first novel, Quicksand, was published in 1928 and passing a year later. In 1930, she became the first black woman to be awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship, but she never published after being awarded that. And at the time of her death in 1964, she was working as a nurse. Born on April 13th, 1891, Larson's parents were both immigrants. Her mother, Perdeline Marie Hansen, was Danish, and her father, Peter Walker, was from the Danish West Indies. 
I think he was believed to be of African descent. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He died when Larson was just two years old and her mother remarried a white Danish immigrant named Peter Larson and the pair had a child, Nella's half-sister Lizzie. That is important to note that Larson was rejected by her white family members and they would not acknowledge their family ties. Larson visited her mother's native Denmark twice, first with her mother and sister and then later to study after she was expelled from Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee after just a year. Fisk is a historically black university and would have been the first time Larson really experienced life within an all-black community and she was expelled for a dress code violation. Yeah. It didn't, I couldn't find out what it was. Eventually she moved to New York and it was while she lived here that she got her uh, nursing certificate and she also worked as a children's librarian. So this one goes out for all of our librarian listeners. When Larson was 28, she married Elmer Imes, moved to Harlem and began to publish her short stories. Larson's biographer, Daryl Pickney, says, Because of her low birth and mixed parentage, and because she did not have a college degree, Larson was alienated from the black middle class whose members emphasized college and family ties and black fraternities and sororities. Elmer was a physicist, the second African-American to earn a PhD in physics, and moved in circles that were very different to those Larson had been used to. It was not a happy marriage, and after Elmer had an affair with a white woman at Fisk University where he worked, the pair parted ways and divorced in 1933. What I think is interesting about Larson's life is that you can see quite clearly this perpetual motion she finds herself in, in search of like a place called home, in search of a community. This is something to really keep in mind when we start finally discussing (laughs) passing. So for the book, uh, I wanted to share what is actually the synopsis from the Penguin edition. Lauren, can you Mm. read that out? Mm -hmm. Claire Kendry has severed all ties to her past. Elegant, fair-skinned, and ambitious, she is married to a white man who is unaware of her African-American heritage. When she renews her acquaintance with her childhood friend Irene, who has not hidden her origins, Both women are forced to reassess their marriages, the lies they have told, and to confront the secret fears that they have buried within themselves. Very concise summary of this book. I would have, like, written (laughs) too many pages. Well, I needed to keep it short because of how many pages these notes are. But also, specifically, uh, I wanted to share this synopsis because when I first listened to the audiobook and even when I watched the film, I was like, Irene is the main character, right? Mm. And then it's when I started preparing that Larson bio, I was like, oh, this book is about Claire. Claire is Larson. Claire's the main character. Claire is the main character. Claire is the main character and we can't see her. Claire's story. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's so interesting that Larson has chosen to write from Irene's point of view. Mm Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I love it. I love this decision. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, we know I, lo- I love a messy book. I love an unreliable narrator. I love all of that kind of stuff. So um, another thing I love is, you know, anything that sort of is about class, the intersection mm-hmm. of class and race. So I read this really interesting electric lit piece entitled In Nella Larson's Passing, Whiteness Isn't Just About Race, which really dives into the ways that Larson's life 
intersects with the novel. Um, so if you're noticing similarities, like obviously you're not alone. And here's just a little bit from that article, although I'm going to read more because it's good, guys. It's good. So like many fiction writers, Larson incorporates elements of her own life into her writing. She shared with Claire the experience of being unwanted by white family members. Neither Peter nor her half-sister acknowledged the ties that bound them. Like Claire, Nella was born poor and on the wrong side of town. Not only did Larson spend her childhood in the Vice District of Chicago, she was also confronted by other dangers, a city in which crossing the racial lines was unwelcome and cost those who disregarded them very dearly. And, um... Here's another line that just really sums up a lot of this so neatly. Claire passed for white because she hated being poor, not being black. All passing narratives are about class as much as they are about race. And like, absolutely this. Yeah, that's such a good observation. Of, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, I know a lot of Irenes who had ideas about how to find safety as a black American by going to the right schools, wearing the right clothes, joining the right fraternities, obtaining the right careers. So this is very much about becoming middle class. And I do want to say, like, I'm not passing judgment on that because I think this is all very much born out of, you know, fear and violence and the need to feel like you have some sense of control. But what's interesting to me here is that Irene is this model of middle-class black womanhood, right? Mm -hmm. She's got her charity work. She's got a lovely home. She has two boys. She is a doctor husband. She's got, you know, friends, community. She's got all the right clothes. She's got it all. She's done everything the right way, but she has like also suppressed like so much of herself and her own wants and desires to conform to this ideal that she's starting to sink. We're getting a lot of that in the novel. She's so yeah. tired. She's so weighed down. Yeah, she's exhausted. Playing the game has completely exhausted her. And actually, one of the first things that we see in the book is her walking around in the street and it's the heat and the heat is oppressive and she sees mm -hmm. someone collapse, right? And she rushes mm -hmm. off to get away from the collapse that she sees. And that's how she ends up in the hotel, passing as white, drinking tea. Yeah. To get away from the collapse. To get away. Yeah, totally. This whole novel, it's like, there's just like an anvil that's like tied to her, mm. her leg, and it's just dragging her down. It's just weighing her down. And then you've got Claire, who, to use a word that we've used on the show before, is an upstart. She's using her skin privilege to take shortcuts to the middle class. And I think it's one of the many reasons why Irene is like fascinated, attracted, repulsed mm -hmm. by Claire. Another line from this, this piece, it'll be the last one that I read and then I will post it on our social medias because it's such a great piece. But it says that um, Claire Kendry is not an incarnation of the tragic mulatto figure inherently alienated in a drift whose mixed blood dooms her to racial purgatory. She's not wandering in the interstices of black and white. Instead, Claire is a hunter stalking in the margins of racial identity, hungry for forbidden experience. 
stepping always on the edge of danger. She's a gambler playing the high stakes game of racial roulette. For her, passing is a sport and she is unrivaled in her technique. Claire desires many things, among them to be among Negroes again, but ultimately the true nature of her driving need is as opaque as the ivory mask she wears. So in this episode, we are also going to be talking about the film adaptation that was released on Netflix in 2021. Uh, The adaptation was written and directed by Rebecca Hall and starred Tessa Thompson as Irene Redfield, Ruth Negger as Claire Kendry, Andre Holland as Brian, and Brian Camp as Hugh. The film won and was nominated for a whole bunch of awards, way more than we want to read out to you, so sorry about that. Just, you know, you can look it up on IMDb. Uh, And it has a 90% fresh score on Rotten Tomatoes, which Mm. I wouldn't usually comment on, but I thought that was pretty high. Mm -hmm. A Mm well-received film. It is a well-received film. So, this is one of my favorite books of all time. I think, you know, I I think about it a lot because I am also a light-skinned Black woman who is not super straight. And... It was the only piece of literature that I read as a teen and then again in a Harlem Renaissance college course that made me think critically about my own place in society, my own family history, and why I had been raised the way I had been raised. And this is one of the many reasons why I was just so nervous when I heard that it was being adapted for film. Actually, it's interesting that you said that, especially... um your comment on like oh why you had been raised the way you were raised because I read an interview with Rebecca Hall the director and writer and her grandfather passed as white and so did he it was her experience growing up and then I think she talks about looking at photos of her mum and like doing a double take and being like she looks black yeah, because right. Rebecca Hall's mom looks black and she's like from Detroit. So it would have been, that's interesting that her grandfather passed for white and then her mother is very optically a woman of color. And so, and she comments on that feeling of like, these are my parents' decisions and it's my job as the child to protect the choices that they have made and mm-hmm. to not want to question it. And then she read Passing and she was like, oh, this is a... This is a thing, and I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of what's prompted the adaptation from her. Yeah, I know that she was obsessed with the book. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. I'm actually really impressed, though, that she, like, chose this as her directorial debut, because this is, like, this is a hard book to adapt, mm-hmm. like, for so many reasons. Main reason, it's a completely internal text, right? Yes. Like, this is an iceberg of a book. There is a lot going on underneath the surface and the text is doing so, so much and can be read through so many different lenses. I thought initially when I heard she was adapting in this, I was like, oh, this is like, this is difficult because it's going to be so easy for her to like flatten this mm-hmm. text. Um, and I do have to say, I give the film overall like a B plus, which I think is pretty high considering how I feel about the novella. Like, there is a lot to like in this movie. I mean, the cinematography is fantastic. Um, One of the other things I do want to mention really quickly, I know I posted this in our Facebook group, the TikTok about about the casting of Ruth Negga and Tessa Thompson, because these are women who are, in our society, 
very obviously women of color. Mm -hmm. And so when the casting news was announced, there was a lot of criticism from all sides on that saying, well, yeah, but like, I don't know if you're really going to get the feeling of passing across. These women are definitely two women of color. They don't seem right for the text. Like people were also saying like, maybe you should throw out, you know, Rashida Jones. Maybe like actually you should do it, Rebecca Hall. Like people were kind of throwing out alternate castings. And um, it's clear that the reason why she picked these two actresses is because she wanted it to sit from a black perspective. Mm -hmm. She wanted you to see what black people see when they see people passing as white in society. And also, I think the two actresses that are cast, they don't they don't look unlike her mum, who is a woman that she grew up with mm-hmm. passing, who wasn't having that conversation with her, right? So it makes sense. It and makes also, sense. I mean, they're very, very talented actresses as well. Like mm-hmm. they both actually are really digging into these characters. So um totally makes sense. It's amazing too. I was just like, when I realized that, I was like, wow, you don't really get media created for you, like from a black perspective like from your perspective like Mm -hmm. i thought that was great it's that authentic voice right Mm -hmm. all of that said there's a couple of things that i have just been thinking about quite a bit since viewing the movie and they're like not exactly criticisms maybe they are maybe it's like loving criticisms but just like what the film inspired me to think about honestly so and i'm i'm curious to hear your thoughts on this one because i'm just like obsessed with this like i am really hung up on claire's marriage like mm-hmm. specifically why this guy um so like going back to my college course I remember Claire really flattened as a villain. Like she was described as, you know, cold and calculating for her decision to pass and marry a white man. And um, that was all sort of said without giving a lot of thought to her backstory, I think. Like we know, we don't know a lot, but we do know that she had this violent alcoholic father. We know that she was raised by these white aunts who hated her because she was black. Did she end up with this guy because the danger, the uncertainty, like the racism, like that's all like very familiar to her, right? Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. Was she already passing and like sort of got backed into this relationship? Did she pursue it? Like all unclear. And I think about this a lot when I'm reading other passing narratives and in particular, like the works of Jesse Fawcett, where the characters who are light skinned and passing or thinking about passing are much more level headed and calculating than Claire. Like they very strategically pick other light skinned black people or white men who they deem as safe. Yeah. Which Claire hasn't done. She has Claire not has picked not a safe done. white man. Because this book is a book about like dangers of desire, it makes me think that she was actually once very legitimately attracted to him. And it puts me in the mind of something that a friend of mine said. This friend struggled with addiction and um, they said something along the lines of like, of course, I knew the heroine could kill me, but I also wondered if it could fix me. Mm. And 
I wonder if this applies to Claire's husband at first and then later it's transferred to Irene. Like Claire really, really pursues Irene. And in the book, you have a better sense of that because she actually, you know, tracks her down from Chicago to Harlem. She's not letting it go. In the movie, that's that's way more condensed. Mm. But Claire is definitely longing for this connection with Irene. And on her end, it may be sexual as well. But I think the larger feeling is that she's looking to restore something that was lost. I think Ruth Nega does a brilliant job in this film. And she does a lot of work that like hints at this interior life and like this desire and this attraction and this sadness. But we just like need an additional scene or two. Like we need something about the marriage. We need something. Yeah. Or even yeah, about the really backstory. Just that, one, that one bit where she's listening to the saxophone on the chair. That oh, <laughs> Listening to the saxophone on the stair. And she's like, I'm not safe. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the closest I was like, oh, we're maybe going to maybe we're going to get some of that. And then it. Yeah. You kind of like, didn't. I'm not safe and I've never been safe. So, yeah, I definitely think um, one thing that's missing from the film is a sense of danger, not only coming from Claire, too, but like. There is a lot of talk of lynching and you understand why, you know, Brian feels so unsafe and why he hates America. But I don't think we're quite connecting that danger to Claire and what she's doing in particular. Like, this is a time when Black men are, like, lynched for just whistling at a white woman, right? So her constant presence within this community is endangering everyone. And Gertrude really calls that out at the beginning of the book. But she's also cut from the film, yeah. <laughs> which is like, I think, a really big loss because the book really starts off with like, this girl is playing a dangerous game and people know it and they're talking about it. Mm-hmm. And we're just waiting for something bad to happen. So something I thought a lot about during this reading of Passing is that, you know, the book, as well as the Harlem Renaissance movement in general, is exploring what it means to be a Black American, to be othered, to be treated like a second-class citizen in the land of your birth, you know, your relationship to your country. And um, a lot of Black artists and authors at this time, including Larson herself, were traveling abroad, they were moving abroad in an attempt to escape racial violence and to find communities that were more accepting. And they were writing about these experiences and their relationship to these other places, including and especially Africa, right? Like, so some people felt very connected to Africa, some felt very disconnected to it. And there was always this sort of question of like, is it a motherland? Can it be a motherland? Like, what is our relationship to Africa? And Larson's passing actually starts with these lines from a County Cullen poem. County Cullen is a, another Harlem Renaissance poet slash writer. And the lines are, one three centuries removed from the scenes his father's loved, spicy grove, cinnamon tree, what is Africa to me? And um, the line, what is Africa to me, really jumps out at me 
it took me back to a time in high school when I had this white guidance counselor who was always, um, you know, telling me how exotic and foreign I looked and asking me where I was from and where my parents were from. And when I told her that I was black, she became obsessed with trying to reconnect me to the motherland. And she started bringing me all these books and DVDs about Africa and African folklore. And, you know, there's a lot I could say about this. But I think the thing that I think about most often is the fact that, you know, I look the way that I do because of the history of racial violence in this country. Like, I descended from Africans and Native Americans and white plantation owners. And my family has been here hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet I'm constantly othered and told that I look foreign, even though I'm very, you know, uniquely American. And I feel most American when I travel abroad. And there's this essay by Jesse Fawcett entitled Yarrow Revisited that really, you know, speaks to all of these very complex feelings. Fawcett was an editor at Crisis, and she discovered and mentored a lot of people like Langston Hughes and Nella Larson. And sidebar, she did have a novel about passing that was published the same year as Nella Larson's book, and that was called Plum Bun, and I recommend it. But anyway, Yarrow Revisited speaks to, you know, all of these feelings that she had as a Black American woman, you know, regarding her American identity, you know, being a second-class citizen, wanting an escape, rejecting her Americanness, you know, while she was in the country, and then going abroad and discovering, oh, wait, I'm so American. And also, this is just like, not the escape, the easy escape that I thought it would be. Um This all, of course, makes me think a lot about Irene's husband, Brian, and how he longs for this escape to Brazil. But, you know, I wonder, is he going to find happiness there? Is he going to find security there? You know, at the expense, really, of his wife's happiness. She doesn't want to go there. And um, also, will he be cutting himself off from this, like, well-established community that, you know, he's helped build in Harlem? So, Questions. I have questions about this. Um, Will Brian end up like Claire if he ends up moving to Brazil? I just, you know, I don't think the answer is as simple as Brian thinks it is. And um, I kind of wish there was like a little bit more of that in the book. I definitely wish there was more of that in the movie. Um, It's worth noting that Larson herself, you know, moved abroad for three years. She was definitely also in search of a more accepting you know, community, a place that she could call home. And uh, that didn't exactly pan out for her. Uh, Something that I really liked about Larson's prose is that uh, we said before about Irene kind of being the protagonist and you are kind of really comfortably just in Irene's life and her viewpoint just from the very beginning of the book, Mm -hmm. right? And when, when Claire arrives, there's just an immediate sense of mystery like from the get-go so this is the first paragraph of the book it was the last letter in irene redfield's little pile of morning mail 
After the other ordinary and clearly directed letters, the long envelope of thin Italian paper with its almost illegible scrawl seemed out of place and alien, like Claire. And there was, too, something mysterious and slightly furtive about it, a thin, sly thing which bore no return address to betray the sender. Not that she hadn't immediately known who its sender was. Some two years ago, she had one very like it in outward appearance, Furtive, but yet in some peculiar, determined way, a little flaunting. Purple ink, foreign paper of extraordinary size. I cannot believe that Nella Larson describes Claire as a letter and it is perfect. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> what an amazing first paragraph. And I think it really kind of is just a great example of how you're never quite getting the full story. Right. So whether mm -hmm. it's Irene not telling Claire what people used to say about her or never quite knowing if Claire and Brian are having an affair or whether or not, you know, Irene pushes Claire out of a window. Mm -hmm. Larson just gives you like, just enough to pique your interest, but never enough that you can pin anybody down. It's a really fluid narrative. Mm -hmm. And I was planning on watching the film before I read the book because I don't know if I'm the only one, but I tend to like film adaptations way better if I watch them and then read the book. Because I always think the okay, book yeah. is better than the film, but I'm not like, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I listened to like two thirds of the audio book and then watched the film and then finished it. <laughs> and that was awful. <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> recommend that to anyone. That was truly a... Because I, I just like, ran out oh, of time. Hannah, the, the last third of the book is really where it like. I know, and I was just messaging you like all of this stuff, which, in height, idiot. Anyway, <laughs> so I do think if I'd seen the film first, I would have enjoyed it more. Uh, just because the whole time I was watching it, I was like, the book is so tense. The book is really tense. It's like this mm -hmm. coiled spring, and it's just going to go from the first page. And I just didn't get that in the film. Mm -hmm. The film's so dreamy. And so, yeah. like, floaty, and I just, that kind of coiled, like, ready to pounce. I just didn't feel it. Mm -hmm. And something else that I was really struck when it was missing from the film is just that, like, Irene's initial and then persistent reluctance to reconnect with Claire. She doesn't yeah. want to have a drink with her. <laughs> she doesn't want a letter. She doesn't want to, like, meet her husband. She says that she's out. She ignores her phone calls. You know, mm -hmm. she has all of these plans. She couldn't possibly meet up with her. They don't go up to her room in the first instance. It's really, Claire drags it out of her. Mm -hmm. And uh, Irene just keeps reflecting on how it's been 12 years since she, and notably anybody that knew Claire, has last seen her. And even though she was out of sight, she's never quite been out of mind because Irene's also reflecting on the stories they used to tell each other about Claire. So we know about yeah. Claire's childhood and we have nothing in the whole book, not even from Claire, about the 12 years she's gone, apart from Irene's remembrance of mm -hmm. the rumours people were sharing. So here's, yes. here's a bit. And she could remember quite vividly how, when they used to repeat and discuss these tantalising stories about Claire, the girls would always look knowingly at one another and then, with little excited giggles, drag away their eager shining eyes and say with lurking undertones of regret or disbelief some such thing as oh well maybe she's got a job or something or after all it might not have been Claire 
or you can't believe all you hear. Mm-hmm. And so you're just like, you're so intrigued by Claire, but you also, you just immediately are buying into Irene and her friends, like the judgment that they're casting on her. Mm-hmm. Like you're right in with the class struggle because yeah. all of these people are looking down on Claire and what they think she's, you know, she's been spotted with some white people. Suddenly she's wearing really nice clothes, but she didn't used to have nice clothes. She used to be poor. Mm-hmm. So what could she possibly be doing to be mm-hmm. in that situation now? And it can't, you know. And Everyone's so- waiting for the cautionary tale to happen. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's waiting to say, I told you so, or we knew how this was going to go. 100%. And it's so suspenseful. And I really, really appreciated that in the text. So obviously I read the text in a really wild way and then watched <laughs> the film, but it, nothing really clicked, honestly, until uh, researching for this episode and then reading those other texts that you suggested at the top of the show. And then just the Facebook discussion, like that really <laughs> helped me put it together in a different way. So I'm really excited to just sit down and read it again in one sitting without watching the film halfway through. (laughs) This is a novel that invites you like back time and time again, which Mm -hmm. is another thing that I really, I really love. Now, speaking of that Facebook discussion, let's go ahead and get into some listener comments. One that I found really interesting was from Sarah Rose. Um, She said, I just started rereading, or rather, listening to the new audiobook version by Tessa Thompson, and I'm reminded of just how much I adore Nella Larson's prose style. It's captivating, the rhythm of the words, and the particular kind of thoughtfulness and reflection on the part of the protagonist that the narrator follows. I like being inside Irene Redfield's head as a reader in much the same way that I often feel about Anne Elliot. That's really funny because I listen to Persuasion, uh, the audiobook. I listen to it like every month, but I listen to it mm-hmm. this week. And uh, there is that same feeling of restraint between Irene and Anne. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I got this section from the book because I think this could be Anne Elliot, right? If you just dropped her into this story. It hurt. It hurt like hell. But it didn't matter if no one knew. If everything could go on as before, if the boys were safe, it did hurt, but it didn't matter. But it did matter. It mattered more than anything had ever mattered before. What bitterness. That the one fear, the one uncertainty that she had felt, Brian's ache to go somewhere else should have dwindled into a childish triviality, and with it the quality of the courage and resolution with which she had met it. From the visions and dangers which she now perceived, she shrank away. For them, she had no remedy or courage. Desperately, she tried to shut out the knowledge from which had risen this turmoil, which she had no power to moderate or still within her, and half succeeded. Right? That could be Anne. And I remember listening to that bit and being like, oh, that sounds like Anne Elliot. (laughs) But one way that they're different, right, is that I think that Anne Elliot is meant to be a fairly reliable narrator. Mm -hmm. We're meant to be like on her side. Whereas Irene, it's kind of spiraling by the end of the book. And you you don't know quite what to think. And another listener comment from Lexington K said, it's not very common that you read what appears to be an unreliable narrator in the third person. 
the whole story is filtered through her perspective. However, and very often, I stop to question what was actually happening versus how Irene was seeing it. This book can also feel like a slow start because you're with Irene as she's like thinking everything over, right? She's very calculated. She's Mm -hmm. measuring everything and everyone's responses at all times. I know a lot of people have had a a hard time just getting into the start of the book for this very reason. Yeah, I think there were a couple of comments like that in the discussion as well. Lexington made a great point about the queerness of the text saying, I did not expect this novel to be so gay. I love the ambiguity about this. Irene is very clearly attracted to Claire. It's also clear that she has no attraction or romantic love for Brian. It's also interesting that she seems to have no romantic love for Claire, just a very raw and shattering physical attraction. I also noticed the queer language about Brian. I read a footnote in my edition that the Brazil stuff is a latent reference, not just to there being a better environment for people of color, but also for gay men. It's interesting that he's so focused on moving to Brazil and Irene is very adamant that he will not. This book was very messy and queer as hell and I'm living for it. And so here I think that we've come to the great trick of the novella, which is that like everyone is passing. Mm -hmm. Irene in this reading is passing as a straight woman. Um, It's an interesting thought that Brian is gay as well. I actually, that had never occurred to me before. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. That kind of blew some things open for me. I do think Brian is passing 100% in the sense that he is trying to conform to certain societal standards Mm -hmm. and he is performing. And to be black in America is always some sort of performance in general. I think like now the way that we talk about it a lot of the times is um, code switching, Mm -hmm. which is just... A cousin to passing, honestly. Lexington also wondered if it was Irene's own attraction that led her to imagine that Brian was having an affair with Claire and Joy agreed. This is pretty generally agreed upon, um, saying that it seemed pretty clear to me that Claire was not actually having an affair with Brian and that it was Irene's obsession with Claire and the fact that she thinks Claire wants to take her place that made Irene believe it. Uh, So I feel like a Wally now. So me and Sarah Rose, based on the comments in the Facebook group, right, we were both invested in the Brian and Claire affair. Mm -hmm. But it was these comments that made us realise that there is no real evidence of that happening. And I think, for me at least, it was the film. The film is like, they're having an affair, right? It feels like it's really... I don't know what else was happening in those bits where he's like whispering in her ear and like when they're dancing together, mm-hmm. you know, it feels way less ambiguous in the film than it does in the text. That's what I'm blaming. That's what I'm yeah. blaming it on. That's my excuse. I don't think that the, it's necessarily like also like a wrong reading in the sense that like if you read it as Brian and Claire are having an affair, that opens up other interesting ideas about the text. But also, right. like, Brian and Claire having an affair, it could be a flirtation. It could be spending more time with another man's wife instead of your own wife because she's new and she's interesting and, like, mm-hmm. she's not familiar. And she yeah. wants to, she's pushing him to, like, dance longer or stay out later or drink more because she's, like, walking that. It's like a different life, right? So even if it's not yeah. 
Yeah. Well, they're both so like she is unspooled from a community and he wants to be unspooled mm-hmm. from it. Like he like she they're both travelers or he's an aspiring traveler mm-hmm. in this sense. So I their attraction to each other makes sense. I don't know if you need it to be like hard and fast on anything. No, I right? think it's the strength of the novel though. Like the the mm-hmm. novel is built on you not knowing a single mm-hmm. thing. That's like it's it's fluid. And fluid is a great way to describe all of it because like it just allows you, yeah, to explore all of the possibilities and like what mm-hmm. that means. And they all have interesting ideas. So yeah. So I feel like we I feel like there's more to say about Claire on her own, not in relation to Irene, not in relation mm-hmm. to Brian, but on her own. On just her Claire own. Kendry. Claire Kendry, the life. Well, I Sans mean, 12 years. <laughs> <laughs> so much to say about Claire and motherhood, which I think is really interesting. There could be a whole other episode of just passing and like motherhood. Something I thought about quite a bit during this reading was that Claire probably doesn't want to get too close to Marjorie, mm-hmm. her daughter. She she knows that she could lose her, ruin her at any moment. I feel like Claire, there is a sense in the book that like Claire just like knows she's playing a dangerous game and is like, but she just can't help herself. And um also, Claire is used to operating in dangerous spaces, right? Maybe she doesn't know mm-hmm. how to work any other way. She was raised by that alcoholic father, those angry, sort of religious, hypocritical aunts. I, I think it's very possible that, you know, relating to and mothering Marjorie just isn't in her wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. And um, Claire longs for home. She longs for community. But does she know how to build it? No. No, not at all. And actually, it's interesting because she gets on pretty well with Irene's kids, right? So -hmm. it's not that she's disinterested in children. So I think you're right in saying, like, there's something going on for her as a mother, not her and kids. Yeah. Generally. She's not uninterested in children. No, I don't think she's uninterested in children. I think she she really is envious of the life that Irene has managed to create for herself. Mm. And I do think that she wishes that she could have done something similar. Now what's done is done. Exactly. Yeah. Is a big is a big part of it for her. Um, Another comment from Tanushri N said that the entire novel, I kept looking for a solid reason for Irene's resentment of Claire. And while I think there are several possible answers that each deserve exploration, like desire, jealousy, internalized racism, I found myself honing in on this quote from the scene in which Irene is musing about the idea of telling Jack, you know, Claire's husband, about his wife's secret. And it says, for the first time, she suffered and rebelled because she was unable to disregard the burden of race. I think this is such an astute observation on Nella's part and something I think people of color continue to deal with today. While white people have the luxury of making individualistic decisions, that is not the case for people of color who are often, if not always, reminded that their actions may be used to represent the race as a whole. People of color are treated as a monolith and as a result, they must deal with the negative stigma of turning in someone of one's own race as an act of disloyalty. 
so much this. Mm-hmm. Right. And also, Irene is like an upstanding member of the community. Claire has also wormed her way into this community. People know her. They like her. What would the, like, this is also a social death for Irene if she were to do this. It goes against her morals. It goes, it goes against everything for her. Lexington was struck by the discussion on racial fetishization during the dance and said, notably, because it was a discussion of extremes, it was white people fetishizing dark-skinned black people. It was also interesting that this was another instance of Irene dismissing the issue and giving a bit of it both sides to it response to Hugh. Now, I really liked the party scene um, Mm -hmm. because of that conversation between Irene and Hugh. And I think as a reader, it was when I got the stronger sense that this is a story about a desire to be black and to engage in black culture freely and authentically and not about a desire to pass as white or adopt white culture. And I thought it translated so well in the film like really Mm -hmm. well, and included some of my favourite dialogue, which I think might be the conversation that Lexington was referring to. So in her conversation with Hugh, Irene says, it's easy for a Negro to pass for white, but I don't think it would be so simple for a white person to pass for coloured. Hugh responds by saying, never thought of that. Mm -hmm. No, you wouldn't. Why should you? Irene responds. And I think the reason that this really stood out for me is because we're reading this as part of a wider series that is comparing the works of white and black authors on the subject of being black and there are so many instances of white people never thinking of that and yeah as a as a white reader and like in this kind of group of texts that we've been reading I feel like that really just hammered it home just the never thought of that being like a message from the book about this experience you know what's really interesting about that is that um, I'm sure we all know about Rachel Dolezal, mm. who is the white woman who passed for black. And she was even, I believe, like president of like a chapter of like the NAACP. And um, in the documentary on Rachel, which is on Netflix, uh, there's some really interesting things that are said about her by black women who are like, OK, so, you know, she would try to form these relationships with us. And it, her idea of like being an authentic black woman was like kind of constantly to bring up trauma and race. Mm-hmm. And all of these black women were like just a little bit confused by her. They were like, what is what are you talking like? What's going on? We're not. And a lot of them were just like. I guess I just figured she was a woman that had a lot of trauma in her life and didn't know how to like sort of communicate clearly. But now looking back and knowing that it was all a performance, it's like she sees black women as victims Mm -hmm. instead of actually people. people. (laughs) And so they're like, oh, okay." What Rachel never thought about and what Claire constantly thinks about is like, this shared experience of being black in America and this culture and like the people who can relate to you on a, like, on a specific level, not with regards to trauma only, but mm-hmm. you know, like of joy. And it's really, it, it is really well, it comes across really well during that scene when she's dancing and drinking and having a great time mm-hmm. and feeling and looking like she's being accepted. 
So, yeah. I think it really speaks to white privilege as well, right? The idea that Mm -hmm. to pass as white is to release yourself of burdens and to be free, like Jack says in the Langston Hughes short story. Mm -hmm. Uh, But to pass as black, Rachel Dolezal had to burden herself and create trauma. So another scene that really impacted the readers was the conversation around lynching. And Lauren, I know that when we were watching the film together, you made just a bunch of really interesting points about this and also about uh, Rebecca Hall's decision to move the scene because it appears in a different part of the film than it does in the book, I think. Yeah. So throughout the book and and also in the film as well, you have uh, these discussions that Brian and Irene are having about how to like talk to their kids about race, mm-hmm. about racism, essentially. Um, and not quite like seeing eye to eye on that. And the lynching discussion is sort of where that all kind of comes to a head. Now, in the book, the lynching discussion is placed after Irene is like certain like you feel with certainty that she like she has clocked this affair between mm-hmm. Brian and Claire. <laughs> like, why did I forget her name? And she is spiraling at this point. And it just kind of like it blows up and it's an argument that is about lynching, but it's also not about lynching. It's about a bunch of things that are going on in their marriage at that moment. Um, but in the film... We haven't quite reached that point yet. Mm -hmm. Like she's not spiraling. She doesn't like have the evidence that she thinks she has that these two are having the affair. So the conversation feels a little bit more straightforward. Essentially, Brian wants to um, really give the boys the facts on lynching. On what's going on in America and how dangerous it is to be a black man in America. And Irene wants to protect the boys just a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's like, they're not old enough yet. They don't know. They don't need to know yet. And he's like, of course they're old enough. Like someone has like already called one of her sons the N-word. Like Mm -hmm. they, of course, they need to know. They need to be prepared. And there's just like so many things that I think are going on in the scene. And it tells you so much without directly telling you. Um, One is that Irene, like, probably agrees with him deep down, Mm -hmm. right? She sees the danger. She knows. She's constantly, like, measuring her own safety and, like, danger at at every moment. So she knows that they need to have the conversations with the boys for their own safety. but, But she is not ready to move from the safe, idyllic space that she has created within her marriage and her home just yet. Her safe space is being threatened by the fact that, you know, her boys are growing up and they're having these horrible experiences that she doesn't want them to have. But also Claire and like everything that Claire represents, whether or not like she has this desire for Claire, whether or not Claire is, you know, having sex with her husband. It's kind of like irrelevant, like both are Mm -hmm. dangerous and could like unspool her at any moment. Like everything is on the precipice of blowing up and she just wants to hold on for like a little bit longer. Two, like the argument is about lynching, but it's not <laughs> like mm-hmm. she wants to argue at this point. You've been in her head like she's waiting for a reason to blow up. Um, she says she wants to argue about the suspected affair. But also, again, she's not ready 
to move from the safe space. So she just attacks Brian for how Mm -hmm. he's talking to the boys. She wants a fight. She sees the opportunity. She freaking goes for it. I've done the same thing with dishes, guys. I've done, it's not about the dishes. It's not about the way that you put them in the dishwasher. It mm-hmm. is about something entirely. Sometimes um, with John, it is about how you put it in the dishwasher. I mean, sometimes though. it is about the dishes. Yeah. But sometimes. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> it's just not. <laughs> and what I love about this argument in the book is that the argument is happening also in her head and with Brian because the argument becomes about Claire and she Mm -hmm. twists it to be about Claire, but she's only saying those things in her head. Those are not the things that are coming out of her mouth. Yeah. Um, Number three, I, I don't think she wants Brian to control the messaging. She doesn't want him to fill their heads with ideas about Brazil. Yeah. And moving abroad. She is rooted in the United States. She's found a way to navigate the system. She's hoping everyone else will get on board as well. We're all going to get on the same page because we don't really have a lot of other options, guys. So we're all going to have to get on the same page. And you're going to have to come to terms with that first before you start talking to the boys Mm -hmm. about racism. Yeah, definitely agree. And especially with uh, that first point about the idyllic space that she's created, so Larson cast this amazing spell where you are pretty completely lulled into this feeling of false security in mm-hmm. Irene's affluent middle-class life. And you mm-hmm. brush against violence. You know, Jack Bellow, when we first meet him, the threat of being politely asked to leave the hotel where she first meets Claire. But Brian is the person in the story that is forcing us to recognise that they are not safe, regardless of, you know what Irene might think or or choose to believe. And, you know, is it any surprise that she would want to shut that down? Rachel P. made a great point when she reminded us that Irene is just as constricted as Claire. She has built this life that is rigid and well-guarded and sees ideas like Brian's as threats to its equilibrium. She is passing too not as an individual in the white world, but in the privileged life that she has created and can't allow the realities that Brian sees in. So we touched on it just now, but we've got to talk about the ending. I think uh, Joy put it best when she asked the group what they thought happened. Did she fall accidentally? Was she pushed? And by whom? Like Cluedo, right? So Joy went on to say that she couldn't see how Irene could have pushed her despite her guilt afterwards. Everyone would have been looking at Claire and it would take force to push someone out of a window. You couldn't do it so no one would notice. I think Irene's desire for something to happen to Claire makes her feel like she caused the fall, even though she really didn't. It's so important to her to be in control that she thinks of the incident as though she were in control of it, to the extent that she lets her think about it at all. Okay, but hear me out. Mm-hmm. I am team. I'm fully team. Irene did it. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Not a shove, you know. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's a big old window. Jack's rushing towards you. And I think that both Irene and Claire probably flinched backwards a little bit. So I think I maybe also Claire did it too. But yes, <laughs> you know, they did it together. You, you made the Thelma and Louise comment when we were watching it. Um, I think for me... The whole bit about the teacup, right? The ugly teacup that Brian has around the house and she's never known how to get rid of it. And she says to Hugh, she's like, and I just realized I could I could just break it. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, and then. Uh, yeah, that is um, it's amazing because I think that if you go back through the text, there are moments just like the teacup moment or mm-hmm. the teapot moment. Is it teacup, teapot, whatever? <laughs> I think it's a teacup in the it's, book and a teapot in the film. In the film, right? Okay. I think there's a lot of moments if you go back in the film that it's like that's saying this exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's even a moment right before, right? She opens the window. She opens that big window. She's hot. She's feeling so oppressed. She's weighed down, like, right? Mm-hmm. She's spiraling. She it's opens the window. the beginning of the book coming back. Mm-hmm. Opens the window, lets in the air, lights a cigarette, and then flicks it out the window and, like, watches. As it's snuffed out. As it's snuffed out in the white snow. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> all symbolic. Like, the, all of this keeps happening. It keeps happening. So that's why it feels in the book, too, so tense. Again, going back to that, like, this is inevitable. This is going to happen. Yeah. Because she, yeah. <laughs> she was going to push it. <laughs> um, I mean, at that point, her desire was so strong. And she also opened the window and, like, she willed it to happen. Like, mm-hmm. of course, she's going to, like, take some sort of responsibility for it in her own mind. And then when she, gets down, she, when she gets downstairs, she's like, oh, no, she's not alive, is she? She's, like, concerned about it. She is. Because she pushed her and Claire's going to be like, she pushed me. <laughs> Uh, Tanushri N was also unsure about who did it uh, saying I believe both film and book versions purposefully keep this scene vague Nella has chosen to tell the story from Irene's perspective which complicates things because we are quite literally processing the trauma alongside her but I did notice that in the book more so the language used by Irene after the fall seems to suggest that she is in fact taking the blame for pushing her In the end, I think what exactly happened matters less than how Irene processes the situation. There are more than a few times in previous chapters that she fantasises about Claire's death, and I believe there is much to be said even in her delay in joining the others downstairs after Claire's fall. Whether or not she pushed her, it seems Irene got what she wished for. Yeah, same. I I don't think it matters what happened. What matters is that Irene's going to take the blame. Internally, Mm -hmm. probably not, you know... She's not going to face charges or anything, but like she's going to take it on. Cause of death, according to the policeman, last line in the book, death by misadventure. Mm -hmm. So regardless of who killed her, they solved it. Well, it goes back also to like, I almost feel like it goes back to the quadroons and what we were talking about. Like cause of death is like, Mm -hmm. it's racism racism it's how this society is set up it's like it's this this woman never stood a chance right like god and you know what as well larson says i think it's like centuries past that's how she mm-hmm. describes the passage of time before the policeman says cause of death uh death by misadventure now let's mm-hmm. go and look at the window centuries past yeah taylor's old as time so that is it for this week Next week, we'll be taking this conversation across the pond. We're returning to England and we are discussing Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights. In the meantime, we're still super interested in hearing your thoughts on passing, the novella, the film, hey, even the Langston Hughes short story. And we will be sure to share those links and other articles mentioned in this episode on the social medias. Hannah, 
how, where, what is the internet? <laughs> you can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. You can join our lively discussion group on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. And you can buy our book, Why She Wrote, wherever you get your usual literary fix. And for the first time ever, we also get to say that Why She Wrote is now available in Spanish. And we're very excited about that. True story.